Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. So we're reading from Matthew 12, verses 14 through 37, a long one, so just receive these words with faith. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God, God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers! How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So, if you're just joining us, we've been in a series in Matthew's gospel regarding the coming of God's kingdom. And in these last chapters, we've been seeing this opposition to the Messiah King Jesus. And it's only heating up. The Pharisees, they hate the work of Jesus. They rejected his prophet, John the Baptist, and his gospel of repentance. They're rejecting Christ's ministry of grace, calling him a drunkard and a friend of sinners. Their eyes are totally blinded. They hate that he's setting people free from man-made traditions. They despise Jesus' authority and his teachings. Their hatred runs so deep that we see that they actually conspire together to kill him, the Christ. And that brings us to today's passage where the hatred of their heart boils up in this damnable venom that they spew from their mouths. So many things in this passage that we won't have time to look at, but there's this one basic thing that I I hope you will come away today with, and I hope that we can breathe into each other And it's this reverence and love for the Spirit, for the person of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit. That is what this passage, I think, points us to, to love and revere His Spirit and His works. But there's two other other things within that that I want you to really uh, hold on to, to catch here. First, the kingdom of God It comes in the power of the Holy Spirit to despoil demons and to liberate those who were enslaved to Satan. This is the kingdom that liberates, empowered by the person of the Holy Spirit. Second, there are those who so oppose this liberating work of the Spirit, who so oppose the power of Christ's kingdom, that they will forfeit all forgiveness and will have no longer any room for repentance by their own words. These are persons that we might call agents of satanic slavery. We'll be getting into all these things, but first, let's invite the Spirit to be our teacher. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace to us that we, your church, The members of your body are gathered here today in your spirit to exercise our giftings, to build each other up in love into the fullness of Christ. That is what we are here for, and that is the work of your spirit. 
We thank you so much that you are so gracious and good to us. You give us Christ for mercy. You give us the grace and power of your spirit. And you've given us your word freely that we can study this together. You are the greatest and the most cheerful giver. And so, Lord, we just ask, lavish more grace on us. Let us be debtors, further debtors, never able to pay it all back, debtors of your grace that... Um, that we will be able to see your work and your power among us, God. So I just pray that you would empower works of liberty here today. God, there are people here that are still enslaved to sin and to Satan. And I know that today, Lord, you can set them free in the name of Jesus. Empower that work of freedom. There are Christians here who, though they have been set free, are living as if they are still slaves to Satan. They, they, part of it may be that they want that slavery. They miss that slavery. It's like the Israelites leaving Egypt, the leeks and the onions. I miss Egypt. Slavery in Egypt was so much better than serving God. God, would you just work true freedom from these wrong thoughts, these evil thoughts, and, and give us true empowerment by your Spirit to then glorify you and to be participating in the work of liberating others. Oh God, let us be a church that is free and free to free others by your Spirit. Let us be a church of liberation. So exercise your power over the dark Lord, our enemy, that snake. Deliver many so that glory may abound to your name. Let reverence and faith and love fill our hearts for your Holy Spirit. I pray all these things in the precious and powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So first, let's look at verses 14 through 21. I already read it, so I won't reread it. But this passage is key to understanding everything else around it. Overall, this prophecy from Isaiah shows us the nature of Christ's kingdom and his ministry. Let me point out a few things that shows us about his kingdom. First, it shows us the work of the Christ. What is the work of the Christ? It is to proclaim, to preach. And what is it to preach? Justice to the peoples. His righteous demand for justice, God's wrath against injustice, God's wrath satisfied by the willing sacrifice of Christ, Justification before God of all people who turn from their ways to obey Christ. He is preaching justice. It shows us the person, this passage, besides the work of Christ, it shows us the person that empowers the Christ's work. Got a little music going on. Sorry. That's fine. Don't worry about it. So it shows us the person that empowers this work of Christ, the Holy Spirit of God resting upon the Christ. The Father said, I will put my spirit upon him. Through the Christ, or though the Christ would preach many words, many sermons, his kingdom would be defined by power. Power issuing from the Holy Spirit, manifested in signs, wonders, miracles, and all the gifts of the Spirit. So this, this prophecy shows us the work of Christ, the person that empowers that work, the Holy Spirit. And it shows us also Christ's gentleness toward the nations. It's amazing that this Christ, this King, 
this Lord of Lords, he comes so gently, so gently. Many Jews thought that the Christ would come as a conqueror, and he totally, totally messed with their expectations. He came like this, as he said in our last chapter, gentle, uh, gentle and lowly in heart. He did not come to put an end to the weak and dying kingdoms of the world, not yet. He didn't come to bring an end to the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. Egypt was called a bruised reed in Isaiah 36, verse 6. Someone said to Israel, you, Israel, are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce, your, pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. That's why he restrained people from proclaiming his miraculous power, lest they attempt a popular uprising. The Messiah, he won't yet extinguish the nations, these dying, broken things, not until he brings justice to victory. Ultimately, when he sits upon that throne and he judges the nations, the earth. So that's the nature of Christ's kingdom and ministry according to this prophecy of Isaiah. But for now, the Christ will exercise his full power against the kingdom of Satan. That is the kingdom that the Holy Spirit does violence to, binding the strong man, taking his possessions, setting captives free. Praise God that he's not really showing mercy on the kingdom of darkness. He's showing mercy on us, those who are enslaved to the kingdom of darkness, but he is coming in power, destroying strongholds, destroying principalities, setting free. Anybody else have an amen in their throat besides Ben? Like, amen. Let your, your amen be known, you know? So that is what his signs and wonders express, that all things have been handed over to him by his Father, as he said in chapter 11, verse 27. And so he exercises his power in verse 22 to free this demon-oppressed man. This man who'd been rendered blind and mute by his demonic oppression. The crowds see this freedom that Jesus brings, and they ask this question, can this be the son of David? Is this the Christ? Is this the new king in David's lineage that we've been waiting for for hundreds of hundreds of years? Well, the Pharisees, they cannot deny that this man had been healed, had been freed from demonic oppression. So instead, they do the worst thing imaginable. They demonize, literally demonize the Christ, saying that it was by the power of the prince of demons that he delivered this man. Jesus shows them that this is sheer delusion in verses 25 through 27. Do you really think that Satan's kingdom is divided right? Do you think that Satan is setting people free from slavery to himself? Do you hear yourself? Do you think that he's destroying his own kingdom, subverting his own will, reversing his works? This is lying nonsense. But that's what people resort to when faced with the true and undeniable power of the Holy Spirit, bold-faced blasphemy. 
But then Jesus says this powerful sentence in verse 28 that I want to call attention to. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Well, wasn't it by the Spirit of God? So apparently the kingdom of God had broken out among them in power. The authority of the king was right there. And what do you get with authority? Well, authority doesn't mean much unless you have power to demonstrate with it. And that's what he was exercising, the power of the Holy Spirit to subject every dark lord of this earth. Are you guys, like, excited all by that? Like, amen, praise God. Like, look, praise Jesus, the powerful Lord who subjects demons. There is no demon that can resist him, no, no strong man strong enough. The signs of the kingdom of God are all around you. It's in this man's deliverance. How can you deny it? This man was a slave of Satan and has been set free. He was held captive as by a strong man, his own possession, but one stronger has come. One who can bind the dark Lord Satan by the power of the Spirit of God. One who can deliver those who are subjected and oppressed by demonic rulers. This is mind-boggling, right? As humanity, we've been subject to slavery for centuries, and now here he comes to set free. I'm, I'm wait, a little more excitement, guys. A little more excitement. Um, a little more praise. So, um, <laughs> so, if Christ, by the Spirit, is despoiling demons, is plundering them, taking captives, and setting free slaves, then what else can you call this but the very presence of the kingdom of God breaking out among you? That is the definition of the kingdom of God breaking out you. In, in Christ, God's kingdom had come to earth, and they were refusing the clear and evident signs you see, the kingdom of God is coming violently, right? We talked about how it was coming gently and lowly for those who are slaves. Well, it's coming violently for the true opposition. Casting out demons, binding satanic principality, setting captives free by the Spirit's power. In other words, the liberating power of the Holy Spirit, it defines Christ's kingdom. As the Apostle Paul says, the kingdom of God, it does not consist in word, not simply in speaking words, but in power, manifestations of power, taking back strongholds, taking back and reversing what the dark Lord of the earth has done. It is the person of the Holy Spirit reversing these works, binding and casting out demons, sometimes even shackling demons to the abyss. Do you remember when Jesus was facing that guy that had a legion of demons in him? A legion Right? And here comes this gentle, humble man who does violence to them. And they say, please don't cast us into the abyss. Send us into the pigs instead. So he's putting people into the abyss. Like, you're in the abyss. You're in the abyss. Right? And, but they're begging with him. He's like, okay, I'll let you guys go in the pigs. So look at, look at the power. They have to beg him for mercy. They have to beg him to forbear his wrath before the time comes when he will ultimately totally destroy them. Man, the power of Jesus Christ. Are you excited? Anyway, sorry, I'm getting a little pumped up here. But um, a little pumped. Anyways, he's unveiling eyes 
and opening them to the truth. He's, he's opening eyes from satanic blindness, right? He's unstopping ears from demonic deafness. He's raising up people from demonic death. The power of death, Satan's power, the sting of death, gone. Someone with greater power. He's unstopping their ears and unblinding them to see and hear the truth of God. These are the great works of the Spirit. They define the breaking out of the kingdom on earth. Did this kingdom stop when Jesus left? Did the Spirit leave with him? No, he sent him. He poured him out after he ascended. This same power is at work in us. This same power is alive today. The same power can set free today and can not just liberate you, but liberate others as you walk by the Spirit. You can be an agent of liberty, setting free other people, right? From the satanic strongholds, from the dark Lord. So greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That one who exercises that power is in you. It's not just happening for Jesus. This is actually something you can access too. I'll move on. So Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of liberation, of freedom. He comes as the ultimate agent of liberty, and the person of the Holy Spirit is the person that liberates. Truly, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom. That's where... That defines the place that the Spirit has filled. But the Pharisees, they reject these signs as evidence of divine power and authority. And they go even further than that, way further. They actually call his works of liberation the works of Satan, the works of the prince of the demons. They detest his works And so it appears that either in this passage they blaspheme the Spirit or they came dangerously close to it and the Lord was warning them. It's not clear. It could be either or. It could be both, maybe depending on the person. I don't know. But blasphemy of the Spirit, it is opposition to the Spirit that has gone as far as it can. Opposition to the kingdom and the power of the kingdom that has gone as far as it can. But this is, of course, it's not the only way that one can oppose the Spirit. We know of plenty of other ways that we can oppose the Spirit. The Scripture, at least four that I could think of, ways that we can oppose the Spirit. And I think it would be helpful to know these ways, these other ways, so we can see how blasphemy of the Spirit is different. So I'd like to look through those briefly first. Not that briefly, you know me. But, (laughs) so, first, we can quench the Holy Spirit. Paul warns us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. As a fire, a burning fire, the person of the Holy Spirit burns, giving off light and heat truth, and power, granting gifts, signs, wonders, miracles. He is prompting and guiding his people, speaking to them and commanding them. But we can extinguish his fire. 
we can thwart his work. We can suppress the spirit among us. The spirit that wants to burn as a fire, we can throw water on. And Paul, he speaks in this passage that we just quoted of the Spirit's work of prophecy, specifically. A prophecy of all things. He says, don't despise prophecy. Now he says, do test it. Don't just take everything, anybody who's saying, oh, I'm prophesying. Don't just take that, weigh everything as he says in 1 Corinthians 14. Weigh prophecies, test them, but don't despise them. Don't despise prophetic utterance. Don't despise revelation from the Spirit, special knowledge and wisdom gifted by the Spirit. I preached on this a little while ago, how the Holy Spirit still works today and gives us things like prophetic utterance and revelation. So if you're a little behind, look back there in the archives. Um, So now here's what happens, I think, today and the ways that we quench the Spirit. We have seen so many abuses and excesses of prophecy and of other gifts of the Spirit. And so what do we do? Well, we heed to a new law that we've created that if ever we see somebody abusing something, then we just stay away from it as far as possible. But that's not how it works. If the Lord's commanding you to do it and to seek it, then you do it regardless of whether people are throwing, don't throw the baby, the literal baby out with the bathwater, right? So <clears throat> I think that's what happens a lot today, that we quench the spirit by, um, dis- by despising what we see in abuses. And also we have these trustworthy scriptures, right? And they're pretty reliable, very reliable. So we might be tempted to say, well, I don't need prophetic utterances, well, why does Paul say, earnestly desire that you may prophesy? Why does he say, do not despise prophecy? Prophecy is supposed to be a part of the church. That is supposed to be a work of the Spirit. So years ago, I'll just give you a story of how this has looked in my life. I received a prophecy from a random lady, an African missionary, missionary to Africa, uh, that I had just met going through this parking lot. And uh, we're just talking. She didn't know me, but as I'm saying goodbye to her, I don't remember anything else. All I remember is this. I go to shake her hand, and she says something that totally speaks to my situation because I was planning on going to school to teach English and maybe go to another country and teach English. I was planning to be, that would be my work in the church, is to be a teacher, maybe a Sunday school teacher. That, I thought it was my gifting and my profession, teaching. And I always thought being a pastor was the most boring thing you'd possibly pursue. But now look at me. I'm crazy. Anyway, so she says to me, you think you're going to be a teacher, but you're going to be a preacher. Anybody else want to curse right now? Like, what the? Anyway, it's crazy. And I just kind of like, when I heard that, I was like, what? Like, that, that has to be like a, like a revelatory thing, but I'm a cessationist, so I'm just going to like, pretend. I don't know what to do with that. I have no idea what that means. So I'm just going to pursue teaching. So for years after that, I tried to pursue teaching. And what did that look like? It looked like that. Me hitting a wall over and over again, okay, and actually leading into a lot of pain and a lot of misery and a lot of lack of the Spirit in my life. I, was, I didn't even know it until recently looking back. I'm like, wow, I was quenching the Spirit by despising the prophecy 
that could have really helped guide my life. I didn't take the time to test whether this crazy lady was saying a real prophetic utterance. And I wish I'd taken that time, but praise the Lord, look at this grace he's given me. He's forgiven me, and now he's brought me into this place of preaching. So praise the Lord. But now, even if we're not cessationists in theology, however, as I was then, we can still quench the Spirit by not seeking his power, by not making room for the Spirit, by not taking the time to seek him and hear from him, such as what they did in Acts 13, the prophets and teachers and the apostles, they gathered together fasting and worshiping just to hear from the Spirit. What do you want us to do? Guide us. So we can be functioning cessationists, even if we believe that the Spirit still works this way. But we must, as Paul says, earnestly desire the gifts, but especially that we may prophesy so that we may build up the church in love into the fullness of Christ. We should heed Paul's charge to Timothy. He said, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God, did, gave, us, uh, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind or of self-control. That's 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 7. He says, don't just not quench the spirit. Take another step and fan it into flame. Pursue that gift of God that he's given you, the way that the spirit has already been working in you. Fan it into flame. Use it. Let it burn. So we must be careful not to quench the spirit, but to fan his, fan his flame into power. So quenching the spirit can keep God's people from the power that liberates captives to Satan. But praise God that this is not beyond forgiveness. We can repent from this, yet we must avoid, by any means necessary, quenching the Spirit. Well, that's just one way that we can oppose the Spirit. There's still three more, so we're going to be here for a while. So that's, that's quenching the Spirit. We can also grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4 verse 30 says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do we grieve him? We grieve him by corrupting speech. If you look at that passage, it talks about all these, these things. By corrupting speech, malicious manners, brawling, anger, by not loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, not dealing with them in tenderness, not speaking in gracious words. That grieves the Spirit when we act and live like we're slaves to sin still, when we're not acting like the Spirit is investing us with love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, all those, the gifts, the fruits of the Spirit, when we act satanic instead of spiritual. So <clears throat> that is, that's how we can grieve Him. The Holy Spirit is the one who seals us for redemption, so why would we even want to grieve Him, right? Does anybody want to grieve the Spirit? Well, I don't think so, so let's try to avoid that one, right? But the prophet Isaiah, he warns in chapter 63, verse 10, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. The people of God rebelled against his ways, his will, grieving him. And that could only lead to one thing. Well, if you're going against his ways, you become his enemy, Grieving the Spirit can keep us from experiencing the full liberty of the Spirit in our own lives and from effectively liberating others. But it's not said to be unforgivable. It's not said that we can't repent of this. 
but let us do everything we can to not grieve the Spirit. So we can quench the Spirit, we can grieve the Spirit, we can also test the Spirit. God's people constantly put the Lord to the test in the Old Testament, and what happened? They were punished severely. Do you think that in the New Covenant, that somehow it's different, that the Lord will allow us to test His Spirit? I think a lot of people think that suddenly he operates as a completely different God and say, oh yeah, you can test me all you want. I'm gracious. Well, he is gracious, but Hebrews 2, 2 through 4 warns us, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, that's the old covenant, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Will you really put the Spirit to the test with your trespasses against His holy will, seeing what you can get away with, how far you can go with it? You might fool everyone around you, even everyone in this church, but you can't fool the spirit of the living God. You can't fool him. Look to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. They tested the spirit by lying to him, lying to the church about what? The nature of their tithe, keeping back money but saying that they gave it all. What did they do this for? It was false self-glorifying that they were seeking. Self-glorification to look righteous and look good in front of people. But they lied to the Spirit in pursuit of this selfish ambition. And Peter says to Ananias in verses 3 through 4, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. In verse 9, he says to Sapphira, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? And what was their gesture of retribution? They dropped dead. The Spirit killed them. And perhaps you've heard of being slain in the Spirit, right? You ever heard of that? Well, apparently it's not what the televangelists crack it up to be, right? This isn't some exciting thing that we want to seek, okay? Now, there is a warning and an encouragement for us that I think is related in Paul's words in Romans 8, 13 through 15. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There's a warning there, and there's an encouragement. To test the Spirit brings grave punishment, even discipline, harsh discipline, even death. But the Scripture doesn't necessarily say, come out and say, that every form of testing the Spirit at all times will not be forgiven. That 
but I, I don't recommend it for sure after what we just read. So let us keep far away, as far away as possible from testing the Spirit. Now, that's the three ways, right? We can quench Him, we can grieve Him, we can test Him. We can also resist the Spirit. Hear what the first martyr after Christ, the first martyr Stephen, says of the Jews who were about to stone and to kill him. He says in Acts 7, verse 51, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. It's interesting that he says that because that's the, exactly the work of the Spirit, to circumcise hearts, to open up ears. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. If they resist His voice, well, how will they believe? If they resist his healing work, how will their hearts be circumcised to repentance? How will their ears be opened? It's impossible if you continue to resist the Spirit. And yet repentance is possible to the one who resists, if they will repent from resisting and stop resisting the Spirit. In fact, though all these different ways of opposing the Spirit are grave, grievous, and dangerous, None of them are so damned in Scripture as this sin we are seeing in today's passage, blasphemy of the Spirit. Listen to verses 31 through 32, what Jesus says. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Obviously, this is so important that we get this right, because this is something that God finds extremely offensive beyond hateful. So what does Jesus mean by blasphemy of the Spirit? Well, some say that blasphemy of the Spirit means murder or suicide or denying the Lord but I think anyone who can read can tell you that that's wrong based off what we just read. I also don't think it's merely and solely talking about a hard state of heart, though that is an essential ingredient. But here's what it is. First, it's a communication. It's an expression. This is actually the most obvious thing in this passage of what blasphemy of the Spirit is. There are at least four arguments for this. First, as R.C. Sproul points out, the very nature of blasphemy has always been understood to be communicative. It's always been understood to be at least verbal or written. It's an expression. It's hard to imagine silently blaspheming, to bl blaspheme in silence. So that is, it's an expression, an utterance. Second, in this passage, Jesus is teaching on spirit blasphemy it's actually prompted by the Pharisees' actual words. It says he knew their thoughts in verse 25, but that's after the fact that in verse 24, it says that the Pharisees actually said this. They uttered this. Third, Mark emphasizes in his gospel account what the Pharisees said as an explanation for why Jesus was teaching this in the first place. In his account in Mark 3, 29 through 30, he says this, Jesus says, 
Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Can you get any more clear than that? And Mark adds as explanation to that teaching, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. That's the explanation for why Jesus said that, because they were saying this. Fourth, right after talking about blasphemy of the Spirit in our passage today, Jesus teaches that uh, people will be judged by what they say. In verses 33 through 37, you may want to look at it. Jesus gives a parable and teaching on this. He says this, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers! How can you speak good when you are evil? He's saying it's impossible for you to speak good because you are evil. The fruit that you're going to produce is evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. By your words. Can it be any more clear than that? So what we say matters. To blaspheme the Spirit is at the very least a communication. It is at the very least an expression. But in this teaching, in verses 33 through 37, you also see what Jesus seems to indicate to be the first condition, a necessary condition for blasphemy of the Spirit, and that is a truly evil heart. He said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, this kind of raises a question. Don't we all have evil hearts, though? Well, not quite, actually. And this has kind of been a change of my mind a little bit recently, And I see this in different passages. Hebrews says, he warns, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He's not saying be careful because you have an unbelieving, evil heart, but he's saying be careful because that could be among you. It could be proven that you have an evil, unbelieving heart, either in you or among you. And so fight against that. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called a day, to keep yourself from falling away from the living God. And the prophet Jeremiah, you may remember that he calls the heart deceitful. And he calls it, not just that, he says that it is desperately sick. The word actually can be translated as incurable. What a bad state that is, that heart, right? And But he's saying that is true of all humanity. That is a universal truth, that we all have a desperately deceitful heart, desperately sick, incurable. But that, my friends, that is the great work of God's Holy Spirit. Is it not? It's circumcising hearts. It's healing hearts. It's replacing hearts of stone with hearts that feel, hearts that are sensitive to him, to the Spirit, hearts that love him and love others, hearts that are truly righteous. Romans 8, 3 through 4 tells us that the Spirit actually fulfills righteousness in us. 
This isn't just a, oh, I consider you righteous, but you're really not. This is a, I consider you righteous by the blood of Christ, and I'm completing and fulfilling righteousness in you by the Holy Spirit. Whoa. An experience of righteousness, right? I think a lot of Christians say, oh, well, we know we're all sinners, so we just can't help it. We're going to sin, and I'm just going to sin, sin, sin. And it's like, why are you talking like that? You have the Holy Spirit of the living God inside of you, given to you for the purpose of completing righteousness. So stop making excuses for your sin, right? So, I mean, if I got the supernatural working, miracle working God in me, then it is possible to actually see righteousness within me, within a saved person. Whoa. So that just shifted my mind because I, I was like, oh, but I'm evil in my heart. Like, it's just evil, evil, evil. And it's like, well, the Holy Spirit actually, by his new covenant, has given us a new creation, a new heart. We are a new creation. This is what the prophet said, Ezekiel 36, 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, the evil heart gone, and give you a heart of flesh. The heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh, that can be actually feeling, right? A heart of stone can't feel anything. Jeremiah said in 24, 7, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. This is the heart that's offered to you in the Spirit. Do you believe it, church? I'm believing it for the first time. Like, I don't know, my eyes, the Spirit just teaches you and He grows you constantly. And this is the same thing that the psalmist prayed. This is what we pray in Psalm 51, 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Amen. Let it be among us. Though all hearts are created equal through the fall, right? Not created originally, right? But after the fall, desperately wicked, incurable. The Spirit completely recreates our hearts. He does the impossible and actually cures evil hearts. The power of God. Praise God. Anybody have a praise for God in their mouths? Anybody? Anybody want to bring up that treasure from your mouth? The praise of the Lord? Nope, nobody? Okay. Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord. So what are we talking about, what we're talking about here? It's not that kind of heart, right? That kind of heart can never produce a blasphemy of the Spirit. It's not in there. It's not capable of that, right? A truly born-again Christian will not commit the sin because they can't find it in their heart. And we're talking about a heart that is, that is so hardened to the Spirit's liberating work, it cannot help. Even in, in the face of miracles and of the undeniable power of the Spirit and of the Spirit liberating people, it cannot help but to deny it all and go even further than denying it, to call that very liberating work of the Spirit evil, immoral, demonic, satanic. I think that we see this a lot in our culture. I don't know if you know people like this, but I know people who when they hear about and they see the freedom working of the Spirit, the liberation of the Spirit, especially liberation from sin, right? They say, oh, that is evil. How can you say that that person should be freed from that? That's not, that's not slavery. It'd be slavery to not do that. They call sin 
freedom and righteousness slavery. That, that is a heart that is going beyond saving. I mean, you know, we, we don't know what's in their heart. Maybe that heart is, they're just, but it says even for a careless word, they will be judged. So this is, this is what the, this is what we're talking about. As someone who calls the liberating work of Christ demonic and satanic, evil and moral, out of the abundance of their heart flows a careless and damning speech against the spirit and the power of the kingdom of God, and there is no forgiveness for that. No room for repentance. The sin goes beyond the pale. Even Jesus said at the cross, when he's being crucified, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, killing and blaspheming the Lord Jesus even was forgivable, but not this sin against the person and the work of the Spirit. Even persecuting Christ's bride, the church, and murdering his servants and prophets and apostles, that is forgivable. As Stephen said, when we, remember we mentioned Stephen, he said, you resist the Spirit? Well, as he was being stoned, being put to death, he prayed this, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Wow. Even that wasn't going beyond up to this point that we're talking about. We know that the Lord answered his prayer too, don't we? Because who was among them, those very people that were stoning Stephen? It was Saul, who we know that the Lord later forgave and gave abundant grace to because he became Paul, an apostle of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, one of the greatest messengers of the gospel. Wow. So, spirit blasphemy, it goes beyond all this. It's an evil expression in the face of the person and the liberating works of the spirit, hating his demonstration of power over darkness, hating his liberation of slaves. Ultimately, it's a preference for satanic slavery. Such persons are actually agents of perpetuating slavery. They esteem themselves so unworthy of the life of the gospel of Christ that they will not allow anyone else to enter into this life and poison spews from their mouth. As the Apostle Paul would later say in 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 through 16 of such people, they killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. Another version puts it, they are the enemies of humanity. And how are they doing this? By hindering, verse 16, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. To conclude, let us all deal directly with the Holy Spirit now. What is the Holy Spirit speaking to us right now? Perhaps you've never been liberated from sin or from Satan's domain by the Spirit of God. If that is you, I adjure you, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus right now, and in the name of Jesus, you will be set free in a moment. Perhaps you're a Christian, and all this talk has you afraid that you've blasphemed the Spirit. I hope that I've assured you in different teachings, I feel like I've tried to make that clear, uh, that if you truly are of the Spirit, then you won't do it. But uh, what you want, if that is you, what you want is assurance. But what you need is to meet the Spirit today. That's what you need. 
Let me tell you the, the greatest assurance and protection against this unforgivable sin is not grief, it's not anxiety, it's not tears, it's not worrying. That won't even help somebody who has blasphemed the Spirit, let alone you if you're worrying that maybe you did this. That won't help. So let's not waste time on that. What will help? What is actually going to assure our hearts? It is love for the Spirit, for the person and the works of the Spirit. It is to revere Him by word and deed. It is to participate in seeking to set captives free, to be free and to set others free. That is the kingdom of God. To work with Christ in gathering, not to scatter. Jesus said in our passage today in verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You see, there's no spiritual Switzerland in this war. There is no neutral territory. In this world, there are no bleachers for spectators. There is only the battlefield. Jesus' work is to gather into his kingdom by despoiling Satan and bringing captives to himself. And Satan's work is to scatter what liberty gathers, to reintroduce bonds, to stop the work of the gathering. You only have two options. It's one of those two. So are you scattering with Satan? Or are you working with the Spirit to gather? Are you joining hands with the Spirit to loose the bonds of wickedness? Are you walking by faith in the Spirit to destroy satanic strongholds? Are you walking by faith to, are you, are you wielding the sword of the Spirit, God's Word, to liberate? Because what does the Word say? It's the truth that will set you free. The truth frees as an effective sword. Are you taking part in knocking down hell's gates to get in there and take captives for Christ? to plunder Satan, to liberate slaves? Or by your passivity, are you an accomplice in satanic slavery? Right now, together as a church, we seek the Holy Spirit for total liberty here, total freedom, and for the freedom to have that will, to have that heart that earnestly desires to take part in the work of the Spirit this great work of the Spirit to liberate others. So pray with me. Spirit of God, come now. Father, pour out your Spirit as you promised to do in these last days and accomplish your works among us in power. Spirit, stretch out your hand. We as a church, we are extending our hand to take yours, to walk in step with your Spirit, I pray, liberate all here who are captives in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit of God. Set free these people in the name of Jesus who are still slaves. And by your grace, Lord, we crave to work with you to gather. We crave to set captives and slaves free from satanic strongholds for your glory, to gather with Christ. So, Lord, now, right in this moment, empower your church 
according to your will, with manifestations of your power in the name of Jesus. To everyone in this room who believes in you, grant manifestations of your spirit. Grant all the works of the body of Christ. Grant preaching. Grant shepherding. Grant teaching. Prophecy. Evangelism. Grant service and works of compassion. Grant tongues and miracles, signs and wonders. Whatever else, Lord, that you want to grant us, grant it for the work of liberation, for the work of liberating Burlington, for the work of liberating Vermont, Quebec, the Adirondacks, the North Country of New York, New Hampshire, Maine, Massachusetts. God, to the ends of the earth, let it pour forth out of us as you pour your spirit here and manifestation of power. Lord, we crave this. We crave that you would liberate, liberate in our generation from the kingdom of darkness. Subject the dark, Lord. Show your power and might over him. And we will glory in that our names are written in the book of life. Oh, praise God that we are freed. We make this request to you, all these things, in the precious and powerful name of the Lord of Lords and the Kings, King of Kings, Jesus the Christ. Amen.